Welcome to the Illuminate Recovery Podcast. We shed light on mental health issues, mental illness, and addiction recovery. Ways to cope, manage, and inspire. Beyond the self-care we will discuss, you may need the help of a licensed professional. My name is Kurt Neider. I'm a husband, a father, entrepreneur, a handyman, and a student of life. I avoid conflict, I deflect with humor, and I'm fascinated by the human experience. And I'm Shelly Mangum. I am a clinical mental health counselor, and my favorite role of all times is grandma. I am a seeker of truth, and I feel like life should be approached with tremendous curiosity. I ask the dumb questions. I fill in the gaps. The Illuminate Recovery Podcast is brought to you by Illuminate Billing Advocates. Make billing and collection simple with leader in substance abuse and mental health billing services. Verification and analysis of benefits, pre-authorizations, utilization management, accurate claim submission and management, denial and appeal management, and industry-leading reporting. Improve your practice's cash flow and your ability to help your clients with Illuminate Billing Advocates. On the podcast today, we are excited to talk with a former married couple. We have author David Marion and Dana Golden. Um, They've been through the journey of addiction personally and as a couple, and um, we're excited to have them here to share some of their story. David is a nationally known advocate for people struggling to overcome addiction and find recovery using adversity, using the adversity of his own story and inspires thousands um, to get help. Today, David is a certified interventions professional. He's a life recovery coach and a motivational speaker. Um, and, and he loves carrying that message of hope and healing to others. Um, Dana is here with us also. They've written, as we've mentioned, written the book, um, Addiction Rescue, The No BS Guide to Recovery. And we're pretty excited to have them both on and, and to kind of j- share some of their journey. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having Yeah. <clears throat> it's rare that we get to have a couple, you know, who's, who's been through the journey, who has their story and who has, you know, can share both sides of it. And so that might be even a good place to start is, um, and David, maybe you kick off, maybe talk about your journey, how you ended up in where you're at today, and talk about some of that journey. And then, um, Dana, maybe you can fill in some of the voids. How's that sound? My story of how I got to where I'm at today. Interesting. Uh, started a few years ago, I'll tell you that. Uh, born and raised, I say, in New York, but never grew up. <laughs> later on in life. Um, yeah, I grew up in uh, a really nice home. Um, older brother, younger sister, uh, was introduced at an early age, uh, had some trauma early on in my life, um, and I kind of ran from that. I ran from that for a long time, uh, never wanted to deal with it. Got introduced um, growing up in the late 60s and 70s to uh, many different fun drugs back then. Quaaludes was the drug of choice. Um, Went to high school with those guys that um, did that movie, The Wolf of Wall Street. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, those were a lot of my buddies growing up, you know, the fun times, crazy times, not realizing uh, where it's going to end up. Ended up going to college uh, upstate New York for two years and transferred down to uh, University of South Florida. I say I graduated with a 3.2, 
but that unfortunately was my blood alcohol level. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> ended up moving back to New York City, uh, completely lost, not knowing what I wanted to do or how I was going to get there. <clears throat> had a buddy that was working on Wall Street. I graduated with a uh, speech communication degree. Knew I wanted to be a public speaker someday and do fun things. Uh, uh, he told me to come interview with one of the bosses of the firm he's with. And uh, sure enough, this is uh, early 80s when Wall Street was hot. Um, you know, the liquid lunches, cocaine dinners, and uh, fun events. Right? Every other week there was an IPO coming out. We're bringing another company public, another company public. So, you know, the companies that were going public love to wine and dine us at these fancy places. Um, I became successful very early as a stockbroker, eventually became a sales manager of a brokerage firm. Uh, eventually, uh, my family had decided to intervene on me and said, uh, we think you're drinking too much and doing too much cocaine. My response was, I don't think you guys are drinking enough. <laughs> and as a result, they sent me on a one-way plane ticket out to a place in sunny Minnesota uh, <laughs> called Hazleton. And that's where, you know, I say I went out there for 30 days and stayed for 30 years. <laughs> and that's where the journey began. Uh, wow. And I'd like to say that's, you know, I'd like to say that's where the story ended, but that's really where it began. Uh, I got clean into over there. Can you hear me okay? Yep, we can hear you okay. Go ahead. I, I, now I have a question for you, David, as you tell that story, and, and you're on Wall Street with a lot of professionals. How, how many of, of your cohorts also had ended up with, with drinking and drug issues? Oh, gosh. Um, it was a high number. You know, I would say 65 to 70% went past the excess. Um, you know, many ended up getting sober, many ended up passing away, and many ended up, um, you know, continually used, lived this uh, unfortunate life where they find no purpose. Um, yeah, there was a tremendously high number. Uh, you know, at these events, everyone drank, everyone got, you know, past the point of, um, understanding what they were doing. Mm. Right. That's that's when a tough that's a, it's an interesting uh, industry. I didn't see many sober people those days. Mm. Uh, interesting, yes. Um, the availability back then was uh, more so I don't think they knew the toxicity of what was happening and dangers attached to the drunk drinking and drugging as much as we do today. Um, so there was more experimentaling with different drugs back then. Um, and yeah, I, uh, you know, I say I started the journey out here. The journey began um, September 1st, 1989. Mm. And so from Minnesota, you race recovery immediately. I loved what it did. I loved how I felt. I loved the clarity. So talk a little bit about, you loved, you loved your treatment and you went to Hazleton. Um, did, did one treatment episode, did that do it for you or did you have to do multiple treatment episodes? Um, so that's a great question. I started out, I stayed clean uh, for a long time. I had sponsors, 
uh, started sponsoring men, getting really involved, service work, stayed clean probably 13 years, uh, had a bunch of knee surgeries, um, played a little college ball, basketball back in the day, and um, I started, um, I'll never forget the first time the doctor went in and we started doing some knee surgeries. The first prescription I ever got, uh, the doctor put me on 180 pain pills. Uh, but this time, you know, the first thing I did, I took two pills. I called the doc up. I said, Doc, you're never going to believe it. He said, what? I said, I'm going to the bathroom. I opened up the pill bottle. They all spilled down. David, I'll write another prescription. Talking with someone at a conference this week, I said, you know, those opioids uh, gave me the same effect that a quaalude did. And I hadn't had that in many, many years. And as soon as I felt that euphoria again, it's almost like I said, God, I'm home. This is it. Wow. Wow. They disguised this in a different pill, not telling us the pernicious effects of, you know, back then. I was a first-generation opioid guy. Uh, and obviously, we know the effects of what has happened since then. FDA lying about the labeling, addiction, uh, not talking about the severity of overdoses and things like that. I had a, uh, Dana and I had, I had met Dana my third year in recovery. Uh, we got married shortly after that, had two daughters, started a very successful gold and silver brokerage firm in Minneapolis. Uh, and, you know, that's where the journey began. Uh, had many, many employees working for us, became very successful. And probably within three to four years of getting hooked on opioids, a guy came to my, uh, I had, well, I had been separated from Dana at the time now because of, I started using uh, gambling, uh, going to Vegas on weekly trips. Excuse me. Um, I came to my apartment one day. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't move. I was just couldn't function. I didn't have any pills. He laid out a line of something and said, snort this. Don't ask any questions. Now I'm hooked on heroin. And that began another run for about a year and a half and uh, eventually ended up bankrupting a multi-million dollar uh, business that we started. Ended up getting divorced from Dana and was sentenced to 60 months in federal prison. That's where I said the redemption tour began. So, December 23rd of this year, I'll have 10 years continuous sobriety again. And uh, yeah, it's just been, I've seen a lot. And I say I've been to places that people dream about and I've been to places that people have nightmares about. <laughs> it sounds like it. I'm, I'm curious, um, I mean, fascinating story, and I've got lots of questions, but I'm wondering if, if Dana could take a minute and kind of talk about, you know, when she met, when she met you and what some of those, those first years of, of your marriage and that journey was like for her. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up with a father that was an addict, so um, I tended to gravitate towards addicts. Um, and when I met David, I was so stoked that he was clean and sober for three years. And I said, I finally got a good one. I finally got one that gets it. He's been through it. I had been going to Al-Anon for years because of previous relationships. And now I found someone that, um, I could grow with on a journey of him already being in recovery and understanding what that's about. So that's why um, I was so comfortable jumping into um, our relationship because we had it all figured out. And then, of course, 
the knee surgeries happened and the opioids um, came into play. And, you know, our life was really good. Like David said, we were making lots of money. We were traveling. We had two beautiful daughters. Um, We, you know, we kind of had the world by the balls. And you tend to, as a codependent person, look the other way a little bit. And, uh, you know, as long as David's happy and the rest of us are doing what we want to do, you know, I just didn't feel like I had the power to step in and change any of it. And the gambling is what really was hard, hardest financially. And um, I told David, you know, can you just slow down? I'm not saying you got to stop, uh, but can you slow down so we can breathe a little bit and catch up financially? And he, of course, being the good addict that he was, said, okay, I can do that. And of course he couldn't. And he would say he was, and I'd get a statement from the casino the bank saying you'd taken out money from the casino and I'm like David and he can try to convince me that the statements were wrong and I just kind of tuck it under the rug and so eventually I said um you know either I I gave him I told him to move out take six months and figure it out try to get shit together if he can stop you know we'll talk about getting back together and of course um you know it just was really important to me at the time to show my daughters that you don't have to put up with whatever's happening in the home. My mom did that. Uh, It didn't help my sister and I at all. And so I decided that it was better for my girls and myself to show the strength to them that we can be on our own and we can do this without having to um, have the addict controlling our lives. And so that's uh, when um, we divorced And then David obviously continued on his path of destruction until he had bankrupted the company. I was out of the company. He, he uh, fired me once I divorced him and then continued to tank the company. And then as he said, it finally was bankrupted and he went to uh, prison for mail fraud and money laundering. Mm. So it was at that point that, you know, I clearly had to get my shit together and I did as a mom of two making it on my own. And I just kind of set him on a no fail mission and I'm not going to let David's actions take down the whole family. So I opened my own business and I, uh, told my girls, you know, nothing's going to change. You're still going to have your dreams and goals. And just because dad had made some bad decisions doesn't mean our lives are over as uh, we know it. So, um, manifested a lot of things in those days to make sure we were all doing um, on, on, our, on the right path to keeping the kids in the lifestyle and the happiness that they were accustomed to. And then David went to prison and took him to visit him as often as we could. He was only about three hours away. And then I told David, we got to write a book. I mean, we have a story to tell and we can help people um, avoid the, the, the situation that we ended up in. Um, other people's bottoms don't have to be as harsh as ours was. So when he came out of prison, he turned his life into helping others uh, and became a certified recovery coach and uh, inf- intervention professional. And then I am certified as a family recovery coach, and we try to help the families on both sides of it. Um, David works with the addict. He's great. Um, he knows, connected with all the treatment centers all around the country. To get them into the right place, you know, I tend to take over with the families and help them for when their addict comes back home, how it's going to be different and how, you know, set boundaries, how to not be the enablers that they once were. And 
find recovery in a way that our family found recovery and come out of it um, on the positive side and put the negatives behind. So that's our goal in working with families um, dealing with addiction. That's pretty powerful. And I can tell, um, Dana, from, from what, from the actions that you took and the boundaries that you set, that that time in Al-Anon um, was definitely valuable and, and your experience with, you know, your own family and addiction with your dad, it seemed like that played a role in the decisions that you made with David. Does, um, can you identify some of those pieces? As, as I heard you talk, I heard you talk about, you know, denial, right? That denial piece of let's not face what's really happening here because it's easier just to ignore it and let it go away. I kind of heard that piece um, but then some other pieces came in that, that suggest you'd done some healing work and understood, um, you know, what health, what, what health might look like and what a healthy relationship needed to look like and what you needed to do to protect you and your daughters. Yeah, that, that, you're exactly right. So um, I'd say at about 29 years old, actually right before I met David, I got into therapy myself because I was tired of the relationships I was getting into and it was just, you know, repeat, repeat, repeat. And I know you're and on the addiction side, they get sick and tired of being sick and tired of the way they're living. Well, I came to the same place in the relationships that I was having. And so I started going to therapy at 29. I'd already been going to Al-Anon for quite a few years and I read a lot of self-help books and, um, to figure out what codependency was and my role in those, um, addictive relationships because I was addicted to the addict, just as the addict is addicted to whatever they're addicted to. And that's where I found my, you know, I was a fix-it girl. I was, you know, I was going to fix, I could fix anybody and everything. And then I realized after getting into these relationships, I couldn't fix my dad and I couldn't fix anybody either. So uh, out between Al-Anon and therapy and reading a lot of those uh, books in that genre, um, I really came to understand my role in it and my place and, um, like I said, I got into that relationship with David because he was in a different place than my other relationships. But when he started using, and like you said, that denial comes back so fast and so rigorous uh, because it's what I knew for so long. And it t did take me a long time to say, you know, I have the tools. I've learned the tools. I've set myself on a path to be able to take care of myself and my girls. And I just had to hone in on all those things I had learned in Al-Anon and through those codependency books to say, uh, I don't have to keep living my life the way we're living it. Um, I can offer my girls and I a chance of freedom from being controlled and held hostage uh, by the addict and what they're up to, their actions. So it, it was, it was pulling strength from all those things in order to step up and, and, and place those boundaries so that we could move on. And as you kind of share that story and that journey, it sounds to me, and, and I seem like I find this to be the case, but you tell me if you feel like it's true on in your cases, that the healing journey that has to happen isn't that far different than, than someone who's dealing with addiction. That the path to healing is very similar regardless of if it's if you're in a, a, a difficult relationship or if addiction is what's taken over your life. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, 100%. I, we're not, as, as those involved with the addict, love one of an addict, we're as unhealthy in our own right as the addict is in their right. And like I said, we're addicted to those addicts. And, you know, if, if we were healthy, we would 
we would never cross the lines. You know, we, those boundaries would be set. But because we're not healthy, we can get sucked in and manipulated and pulled in. And so we do have to find our journey of recovery and healing. And that's why it's so important to me to work with those families because they need the support just as the addict needs the support. And so often there's uh, treatment and interventions and there's counseling and there's AA meetings and there's so much out there and focused on the addict. But a lot of times the family members get left in the wake behind of destruction going, wait, wait, what, what do I do? What about me? You know, they don't know how to change their role or what their place is. And so um, that's kind of become my passion is to help guide them through that journey that they need to get on to recovery. And then the whole family can recover um, as a family together. And even though David and I aren't married anymore, I mean, we have a much healthier relationship. We have great healthy relationships with our children. And even, and that's so important to me to help people understand too, is it doesn't mean you're going to be together. You're not going to be together. That's not the point of it. The point is to each get on your path of recovery so you can have a healthy relationship, whether you're divorced or, or still married. Mm. I love that, and and the idea that that um, that health and and growth. I mean, so often in families, you know, I I hear families go fix fix the attic so that you know so that we can be happy again, and they don't really understand that they play a role in that. And so it sounds like with your experience, you're able to help them see that they have as much responsibility as that person dealing with addiction because they play a role. And I love that you bring that to the table. Yeah. And I was the exact same way when my, I had a boyfriend that went to treatment and when I took him to treatment, his counselor told me go to Al-Anon and I was so taken aback and I'm like, there's nothing wrong with me. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't do anything wrong. He's the one that does it. And she just looked at me and just said, go to Al-Anon because she wasn't about to explain it to me. And so I thought I would be the dutiful girlfriend and I would go and up to Al-Anon to support him. And that's literally my thought heading into it. I was just going to be helping him. Of course, we learn in Al-Anon that we're really there to help ourselves and learn how to be okay within ourselves, whether, whether the addict is using or not using, in control, out of control. We um, are centered and on our own path. But I didn't learn that until somebody told me go to Al-Anon and I didn't do it for any of the right reasons. You know, Shelly, we often hear um, the term, which I really don't like, that the family is sicker than the addict. The family is in crisis, and they don't know how to respond to situations like this. They're doing the best they have. And listen, I've done a countless number of interventions when I ended up intervening on their loved one. But at the same time, I'm also creating you know, leverage consequences called healthy boundaries with the family on how are we going to adhere to this stuff. And I think when you talk about boundaries and the understanding where one boundary ends and the other one begins, any boundary that's ever been created in the family has been completely smashed. Okay. You know, we're living with someone that there's complete toxicity. Uh, the family doesn't know how to respond. They have these titles that they've been going through. Every family has a different, you know, title and role per se we have the hero in the family the black sheep we have the codependent we have the name you know it goes back and forth that's okay as long as it's done with through healthy people right if it's done in unhealthy measures then it becomes unhealthy codependency listen i have two daughters i'm you know probably codependent with them but there's been some boundaries created that we're going to adhere to in the relationship today 
And I like the way you share that, David, too, because it's not shaming and it's not pointing fingers. It's just pointing out the fact that we all have a role to play and that, I mean, I, I remember sitting in, a, in a, a substance abuse recovery center as a therapist talking with families about just what you talked about, the different roles that they play. And you start talking about the hero and the scapegoat and they, their eyes start to perk up and I'm like, oh, I play that role. Right. And it really catches their attention because they've never this is all new to them. This is like you said, they're doing the best that they can. They really just don't understand what the dynamics are in the situation because it's new and it's unfamiliar territory. Yeah, I think what Kurt was saying also in the intro too. you know, we didn't sit in the guidance council's office at 17 years old and say, where do you see yourself in 30 years? Well, it wouldn't be in the recovery field, helping other people navigate their current landscape of recovery and the path they're on. Somewhere along the line, there's something that happens that creates that, you know, um, resistance to the way we we're living compared to where we want to be. And once we break through that resistance and understand that there is another way to live, another life, and families begin to see that. Um, I'm dealing with a family right now that I intervened in New Orleans and brought uh, their loved one out to a facility in Arizona. There's a lot more mental health issues than addiction. And, you know, really trying to understand and navigate how do we work through these mental health issues? Well, first, you know, the psychiatrist is recommending antipsychotics. Um, you know, the diagnosis was between bipolar personality disorder, OCD. And you have to stabilize a person long enough to be able to get through to them. Sometimes, you know, the family's like, well, it's been a week or two. Why isn't this happening? I said, because obviously the meds that they're on, we're going to have to keep regulating them to find out what's right. You know, now we have her on lithium and there's been a lot more stabilization and more groundwork. But at the same time, if a client, if a person is not willing to accept their diagnosis, they're going to live in the denial state. And when you're denying the reality of your situation, you don't have to do much about it. But when you begin to accept your diagnosis, that comes with change, right? Now we know what we have to do. We don't want to keep living this way. So how am I going to start feeling better about it? And I, I think what you share, David, is so so powerful. And, and the message that both you and Dana talk about is those the, the interaction and the way that we start to understand, right, and become aware that there are things that we're doing that create you know, that create disease and, and don't allow for healthy relationships. And so I love what you guys are doing. I'm really curious because you had a very successful relationship as a brokerage and in, in the stock market world um, and in that, you know, in that, that industry. How did you come to the decision to move away from that and, and get into the recovery world? Well, I think, you know, when you're sitting in a federal prison, um, and for your listeners to know, Prison is strictly punitive damages. It's not about rehabilitation. Right? Rehabilitation is a very individualized thing where you begin to take an introspective look on your life to see where you want to go. And if you're willing to really reevaluate, and I did my first intervention in 1992. <laughs> so I knew that I loved um, working with other people, bringing a message to them that they haven't seen. Um, 
I say today I'm kind of a hope salesman, right? I'm selling to I'm selling hope to those that feel hopeless, right? So you better be knowing what, how to do what you're doing and have the passion to do this because that passion will exude. And these interventions that I work on, they're not an hour or two. Some can go nine hours, right? Some can go a lot longer than that. And um, I just knew that I loved doing this work. I loved the feeling when I was in early recovery. You know, when I got sober back when, um, it was a bunch of old-time AA guys, right? Uh, for a better lack of term, I'm going to say one AA guy would stand. There was two AA guys there. One guy was taking the AA message, shoving it down your throat. The next guy was there pulling it out your butt, making sure you digested the message. <laughs> you know? So they made sure that you understood the dynamics of what you're doing. What is recovery compared to what is abstinence, right? And there's a feeling that you get when you tap into the spirit of recovery. That's a lot different than just putting the plug in the jug and starting an endurance contest, right? How long can I stay clean? Because we know inevitably what's going to happen. You're not having more fun in recovery. You're going to go back to using. And that's kind of the message that I share with the people that I work with. Show them how to have fun, how to laugh at himself, how to become transparent, how to tell on yourself. I love when people say, you know, I got to tell you, can I be honest with you? I said, sure. They said, I drank last night. And my response is, gee, that's really not being that honest. Honesty comes in calling me when you want to have that drink, right? Mm -hmm. To begin to tell on yourself, and if I can't give you a better reason not to drink, you're probably going to go drink. Mm -hmm. But let's really become honest and transparent with ourselves, because honesty is no more than a command, right? You should always be honest. Why aren't you honest? You need to be honest. But that leads us to a principle called the truth. And once we have that moment of clarity, I say when our higher power separates the lies from the truth, we begin to have some real freedom in our lives that we haven't had. David, when, when in your journey on recovery did that realization, those pivotal moments for you that allowed you to turn the corner and, and make it not about white knuckling it, but really about sustained sobriety um, because, because you were changing? You know, I had little pieces of it early on. Uh, the full scope of the word spirituality had always kind of tripped me up a little. Um, not understanding, you know, people talked about their faith fourth dimension, a place of bliss, of happiness, serenity, peace. And I'm like, God, how do I get there? I'd love to be there. This sounds fabulous. You know, I'm doing all the right things, and sure enough, I'm not doing, you know. I was... Um, you know, kind of a guy that would pray to God or, or say something, God, take everything. But the only thing I would take back are the two things I thought I can control, romance and finance. Said, you could have everything else. Let me do And it came on my second go around when I began to really understand what true spirituality is in my life. And to me, you know, the only way I can define it and talk about it today, it's the simplicity of life. It's patience. It's tolerance, it's understanding, compassion, empathy, and sympathy. And patience to me is not about standing in line. Patience is, stand, uh, is about standing in line and having a good attitude when I'm standing in that line, right? <laughs> so it's how we deal with it. Um, a quick story about that. I was in a, uh, there's a supermarket back in Minnesota called Kowalski's. 
and I was in there, and there was a woman who was standing behind me. Uh, this was, oh gosh, right during the pandemic. And there were probably four people in line, and she was just going ballistic. I don't know why they don't hire more people. This is insane. You know, as her diamonds were falling out of her ears, I was just getting to the point where, okay, God, this is another test. And she's going on and on and on. And I turn and I look at this lady and I said, lady, if you want to move in front of me, I have no problem with that. I've been waiting in lines to eat on lines of 250 to 350 people a day. This is not bad. She says, where were you? I said, federal prison. Ah! She her Whoa. I said, do you believe in a God, a higher power, something different? Well, yeah. Do you believe maybe there's a message he is trying to transmit to you? Maybe the patience of others, tolerating other people that they can't find the workers right now. Maybe you're supposed to be here. So as we're talking, and sure enough, the line begins to move. And I said, go ahead, you can go in front of me. She throws her hands up and says, no, I need to be right here. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> so these are the opportunities that we come across, you know. We don't know why or when. We don't know how. Um, you know, di no different than um, the first day in federal prison, you know, not having more than a speeding ticket. And everyone's telling me I'm going to be living with one of the highest gang ranking gang members in Chicago. This guy is, blah, blah, blah. You're gonna, you know, sure enough. I walk into my room and I see um, an African-American man on the floor praying. He's got tattoos, he's missing a tooth. I'm saying, this is some tough guy, right? He stands up, sticks his hand out at me, says, Hot Rod. And I put my hand out, thinking that we all need a nickname. I said, Cool Dave. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and there was something that happened. He chuckled and... Uh, we began this bond. He comes from the inner city of Chicago. I came from New York. Um, two worlds meet up in the only gated community in Duluth, Minnesota. <laughs> so our journey began, and we began to really befriend each other. I got to know him. He was semi-illiterate. I taught him how to read and write. He used to scream, this is the white Morgan Freeman, right? I was the only white guy allowed in the black TV room to watch sports. And... I was also one of four inmates out of a thousand that got to leave the facility to go speak at business ethic conferences and um, corporate outings and colleges and universities. And they'd always say, Marion, you could take a few guys. Who would I take? Hot Rod was one of the guys and a couple of other guys from Chicago. Years ago, we got out. Hot Rod went back to the city of Chicago and he started doing something called violence prevention going back into the streets, talking to these gangbangers, same similar message as ours in recovery. If you don't want to keep living the way you're living and feeling the way you're feeling, there's another way. Probably a year ago, my phone lights up. There's a video coming in. Sure enough, it's Hot Rod speaking to a packed house on violence prevention at Princeton University. Now, let me tell you something. I'm a big guy at 6'5", 270, and I, the tears are flying. It was the most emotional thing, these opportunities, right? If we're not alert to them, we're not aware of where we're at, the mindfulness of being there, we're going to miss them. David, why in prison were you able to go out and do the, those speaking engagements? What was what allowed that? I'm a good salesman. I sold <laughs> the CEOs. That, <laughs> you know, I will light it up if you give me that opportunity to talk with them. 
you know, sitting in business ethic classes with at the University of Minnesota, Duluth, um, asking questions that was just so pointed and powerful. Um, they wanted to create a program there, and they did. I, I want to add, though, that David was teaching classes in prison on business ethics and different things that they kind of pinpointed that he could handle, and so he was doing those classes, and then David said, let me take it outside of the prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is a funny dynamic when the inmates are running, you know, doing all the classes. You have uh, disbarred lawyers teaching about law. Fabulous. <laughs> you have the judges that have lost their bench talking about uh, the Constitution. Okay. <laughs> you know, there's there's something I'd like to add uh, to your question, Shelley, to David, about um, when when was the pivotal moment that you changed or you, you know, made the spiritual connection. And I don't think we talk about this much, but, um, one of David's addictions, I believe was money and it became just like a drug to him. He couldn't get enough, right? Whether it was wall street, whether when we had our brokerage firm and money can become an addiction like anything else. And I really think that was for David and he can chime in if he doesn't think so. But he also found that when he got sober, that that money was very much in conflict with his recovery. And I think that that was a big thing for him to overcome was it's not about the money. It's about getting to feel good about myself and what I'm doing. And he had to align his principles and his morals with the money piece. And I think once he did that, it made a big difference for him. And, you know, he even has on his website that, you know, a lot of people do this for the money. And uh, whether it's interventions and coaching, and, and that's just not his, that's not his value for it anymore. It's not about the money. It's about helping people. And that's what keeps him sober and on his path of recovery. So I think that was a huge pivotal thing for him when he I, could make that decision. I think the line is, I'm not in it for the income. I'm in it for the outcome, mm-hmm. really, which I am. And talking about the money piece, sure, you know, listen. I'm coming home and every month I see Dana's American Express bill for $25,000. Now, what am I going to do? I need more. <laughs> um, you know what? I just want to say he is making that up. <laughs> yes. I never even yes. had an American Express in my whole life. So. <laughs> <laughs> that is so not true. <laughs> you know, when we get past the part of denial, we get to this place called acceptance. No, no, we listen, we listen crazy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Nice try, David. We, you know, I mean, I created something incredible there that um, was beyond anything. You know, many, 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 many tax returns over seven figures. And so, you know, having access to money and things like that, it was more about the chase constantly. When I got hooked on gambling, you know, I can't tell you how many slots I've hit over $100,000. Right, I hit one for two hundred thousand, but I had fifty-four thousand out in markers at the time. You know, that's the other side people don't recognize. And mm. That addiction was really um, the hardest because the chase is so powerful. You know, mm. it's thought, like any—it's like any drug of choice, any fix. You know, you just want that feeling, that high of making more and more and more, and you're always chasing, just like for the high on heroin or whatever else. It's just the high that the money does. But kicking opioids was probably the hardest thing as well. You know, uh, when I went to my second uh, treatment center, 
Um, I was put in there, and three days later, I came to, and I started screaming to the nurse, nurse, what's going on? What's happening here? And she just said, sir, you've been balled up in the corner making farm animal noises for three days. We've been putting the cuff on you, checking for, giving you blood work and checking your signs and bringing food in. She said, you haven't moved from that corner in a, in a balled up position. And that was the pain. After I got through that pain, I said, I never wanted to live like that again. Mm. And that, you know, that, that took a long time, that took probably six, nine months to really get the cobwebs out. Mm. Uh, before I, yeah. Well, and that 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 detox does. It takes a really really long time. And <clears throat> and Dana, I appreciate you you know jumping in and talking about some of those some of the other pivotal moments for David. I'm wondering if you can identify some of your pivotal moments. You know, I honestly think that mine weren't that pivotal. It, it, I mean, it took me two years to leave David. There, there was nothing pivotal about that. Um, I'm a terrible, terrible decision maker. And I'd much rather have other people make decisions for me. Um, I think that's part of being codependent um, and just not having a voice. Um, so I really have to overcome that for myself and uh, having my own opinion and deciding my fate rather than letting others decide my fate. And it was just the coming to um, over long periods of time that just said, I don't have to do this anymore. So um, I remember when I we found out that David was going to go to prison and it's like, OK, I, I need to. Uh, so let me let me step back a second. When David bankrupted the company, there was no money left. Right. He all the money that was coming into the company, he was gambling away. And by the time that we, um, I went through everything to find out where we were financially, I didn't realize it, but everything was gone, including the kids' college funds. I mean, he, he had pilfered all of our retirement, all of our money we'd put away for a rainy day. We had a vacation accounts, and I never looked at it. I just assumed it was all growing. And when it came to, I found out everything was gone. So, and I, and I will say that when we got divorced, my support was $29,000 a month. 28,200. <laughs> uh, Sorry. Between, it was so long ago, I can't remember the number. 2,200 in child support, 26,000 in alimony. Oh, wow. Okay, so. Oh, not um, this guy. Sorry. <laughs> so, so when, when, when he was going to go to prison, actually before that, when he bankrupted the company, you know, I went from not working, getting $28,200 a month to zero overnight, literally. And so, and there was no money put away. So it wasn't like I had a little, you know, rainy day fund. So um, that, that was a really pivotal moment for me. I remember I was in, on the, reading the book series, um, the uh, Christian Grey books, total smut novels. There's three of them. Um, Fifty Shades of Grey, that's the name of it. And I was in the middle of the third one, and I literally put it down and said, fun time's over. I don't have time for any extracurricular activities and I just started reading self-help books and business books and podcasts and YouTube videos and just motivational stuff and I just got on this track of it's all it's all on me now uh, you know I've got a some I'm, I know I'm not going to make $28,200 a month right off the bat but I got to start making something to take care of the kids and I and so I opened a company and I I did any side hustle I could come up with and that, that was like the pivotal moment for me it was really just, like I said, I'm on a no-fail mission and I'll just do what I got to do. And anything fun went by the wayside. 
and it, and it became a fun and exciting challenge to see me take care of my girls and, and make it all work. And like I said, the college funds were gone and I told the girls I wasn't going to let their dreams of going away to college go away. And my oldest went to Ohio State and I paid for it. And we still owe some, but I paid for most of it as we went. And my other daughter, fortunately, I told her if she didn't get a volleyball scholarship, she wasn't going to college because I couldn't afford two kids in college. But she did. She ended up getting a D1 scholarship to play volleyball. So um, she was pretty much taken care of. But, you know, I just I was going to do whatever I had to do to make sure that we survived. Mm. It's, it's a it's a powerful story that you both share. And, and, and Dana, I'm interested. This is something I hear uh, here regularly with people that are in recovery is that they talk about what David talked about in this fourth dimension of spirituality. Did that play a role for you at all? You know, it really did. I've always been um, a, a spiritual person, right? I wouldn't say, well, Dave, David taught me a long time ago the line that religion is for people that are trying to stay out of hell and spirituality is for people who've already been through hell. And so I kind of was already of that mind. I've been a very spiritual person. I always knew there was somebody up. You know, I've been close to the ledge so many times. And I always say, God never let me drop off. So I know he's always going to catch me, right? I've always had that that sense. Um, but I'll tell you what really came into play for me uh, when I was going through that was the power of uh, manifestation and um, the law of attraction. And I really turned, I really started, delving into that because I was of the mind that I can make anything happen I want and I need proof of that and so um, I really turned to to that kind of stuff to just manifest and meditate and and I just believe thoughts become things and it's all about what you think about and comes about and that's what I made I did it I mean I I'm, I'm living proof that you can manifest anything in your life you want because I had nothing at that point and I made it all work so and we talk a lot about that in, in our book. Mm. That you can create the, the, the life you want just by thinking about it, visualizing it. Vision boards, you know, we talk a lot about that kind of stuff. So mm, I love it. I know, I know manifesting has been on my mind lately of, you know, understanding it more and, and really being clear about what am I manifesting. And there's so many aspects to that. So I love that you bring that up. It's a, it is a powerful um, tool to to have your body and mind go after what it is that you really want because it's just going to go after it can't tell the difference between what's real and what's not right that's right that's exactly right your brain doesn't know if you're imagining it or if you're actually seeing it it's just, it's all the same in your brain and it'll go after whatever you tell it to go after yeah that's exactly right so you if got... you're thinking negative, it's going to bring more negativity. And if you're thinking positive, it's going to bring more positivity. So, yeah, there's there's a lot about that in the book. I, I think that's a huge part of anybody's life to get to make a better life for themselves. I just really believe believe in that. I talk, I, I think the law of attraction is just as prevalent as the law of magnetism, you know, mm -hmm. the law of gravity. It's just another universal law. And unfortunately, I don't think it's talked about enough or... Uh, people to understand how important and um, how great it can be in their lives. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's a good segue to, to maybe um, um, talk about how people can connect with you and places that they can find your book um, so that they can go back and visit some of those. And, and, and because you guys are both really active in interventions and in addiction recovery and supporting people, 
uh, maybe some contact information for that as well. Yeah, I can go through that. So the book, as you mentioned, Shelley, is called Addiction Rescue, The No BS Guide to Recovery. It's available on Amazon. Um, there is a workbook that you can work alongside of the book as you're reading it. That is a free download on our website. And the website is theliferecoverycoach.com. Um, David and I both have our contact information on that. But do you want me to give phone numbers, Shelley? You can if you'd like. I mean, people have done it before, and I think it's, you know, it's a real indication of just how dedicated you are to helping people, that you're available. Yeah, absolutely. So David's number is 612-849-7509, and mine is 612-968-1490. And we're happy to consult for you know, no charge. Um, if people want to know what we do, what our services are like, what we can, um, provide and talk about pricing on the phone. And, uh, there's always free consultations and we're, you know, we're more giving than in it for the money anyway. So we're always there to help people, uh, with whatever we can do to help them find resources and direct them. And, and of course, if they want our services, we're there for that as well. That's fantastic. And, and I think it's important, you know, it's like, like David said, that if you're in it for the right reasons and what you're offering has value, that the, the money will follow, right? The money follows and it can't be about the money. It has to be about helping and, and, and healing. So I love that you both approach that and, and talk about that concept. Yeah, I think the passion is what really exudes. You know, I've had the most incredibly wonderful reviews from clients who uh, families and you know they say the nicest most wonderful things and send these beautiful reviews and I said I never got a, a, a review like that on Wall Street or in the brokerage industry if you made someone money well you did what you're supposed to if you didn't make a money well you're a jerk right these people you know it's more about saving lives and I often hear people say you're doing God's work and you know we had no one else to count on uh, we took a shot on you um, talking, you know, going online, and we made one of the best decisions that we've ever made in our life. Uh, when you hear stuff like that, it just reinforces the path, mm -hmm. and knowing that this is exactly what I was supposed to be doing. I think that's fantastic what you do, and I love, you know, kind of ending our podcast on that piece of gratitude and, you know, that difference of, of the work that you're doing. When people are grateful because you're changing lives and you're creating happiness and hope, is very different than creating money and you know the other things that we've talked about on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure having both of you on and, and sharing your journey and your story with us. Um, and I'm excited to go to go read the book and learn more about manifesting and, and the law of attraction and vision boards. That's, that's something that I love and I always love learning more about. So thanks for sharing that and writing the book. Uh, thanks so much for uh, wanting to read it and uh, enjoying that that line of uh, thinking because uh, it really lights me up. I love when people get on that path. Thank you so much for inviting us on this podcast today. And uh, yeah, really, it was nice meeting you and talking with you and sharing our story. And hopefully, our story can help another family. And that's all we hope. You know, it can resonate with them that they don't have to keep living that way. That maybe somewhere along the line, that this is a message of hope to them. Yeah, I don't think there's anything more powerful. Excellent. Thanks so much.